I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PMF. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? You just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Pozzolo back here with Sam Monson. It is our midweek Wednesday show. All sorts of fun stuff. It's usually fueled by our fans, the listeners, the viewers through the mailbag. So we appreciate everybody that has uh, asked us questions. Yeah. How you doing? And, and fueled by coffee. A lot of coffee. Why do you need so much coffee? It's been about seven hours in three different hospitals yesterday. You all right? I'm fine. Yeah. 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 Actually, everyone's fine, but we have to get the. Uh, had to get the kid ruled out for appendicitis. And what was the ruling? It was ruled out. Oh, good. At about midnight last night. Nice. Yeah. Oh, midnight? That's not that late. No. I you were there till like 3 in the it's morning. It's just when something. you start off at like 6 and think, oh, yeah, it'll be an hour. Just get a quick ultrasound here. That's a grind. Yeah. You know, that's not in the parental handbook, the old um, six nobody, to eight hour hospital Yeah, nobody tells trip. you how long that's going to take. Yeah. You know, best medical system in the world. You got to go to three different hospitals before somebody will wheel in an ultrasound machine. Even when you go to just one hospital, I've had a few of those six to eight hour trips. Yeah. Like, let's rule out all the bad stuff. And, right. Yeah. Tyler was telling me, though, that the, uh, the cafeterias are usually top notch. I never, I never got a chance to sample. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been in and around a lot of children's hospitals over the last six years. Yeah. You, you, <laughs> well, you've got too many kids. I mean, one is bad enough. Four of them must be just like, you must have like your own VIP parking area and stuff. The, the thing I have is the day that like my wife's in labor and I'm just like itching to get like down to you know grab some lunch or whatever and yeah. you know she's she's going through it i'm like so you good for a little bit can i get to the calf you know <laughs> like they the got game, some they got the game got on. a really good spread here today yeah. so but yes yeah, um confirm. generally send us emails uh the email address is nfl podcast at pff.com i believe tyler has a little graphic that'll uh show you that email address also the twitter account and the tiktok which is yet to have anything put on it recently so we'll have to get to that i've got a good thing to put on it though i forgot to put the uh, somebody suggested that the correct application process for talcum powder for your bald head is to do like a lebron, LeBron style, style yeah you know into that. the hands and up in the cloud and then just walk through it you know yeah and i'm definitely going to try that as soon as i remember and bring it in that's uh tiktok material yes that's what i'm saying how so do you know, do you, are we going to try to replicate everything from TikTok and Twitter, or is there TikTok-specific content that you know will play better there than, say, the Twitter crowd? I mean, generally, the, the TikTok stuff will be more video-focused. It's not, well, there's that, no, I you're know. dramatically overestimating the planning that's going into these two accounts right now. There'll be stuff put on there, there'll be interesting stuff, there'll be things you won't get on the podcast that's about as far as I've got with it. So, Great. you know. So, Follow at least, them. at least follow the uh, TikTok account in but particular. The other thing you can do if you send us email is fact check us, which is what our first email did. They seized upon your crap and uh, took it down in an email. Well, they they got more work to do because I have a rebuttal. Okay, do you have an ad read to do before we get into this, or or we just go right in? I don't. I just wanted to remind you that the okay. PFF NFL podcast is sponsored by Western and Southern Financial Group. Let's see. 
While you focus on your roster moves, Weston and Southern helps advance your money moves. Buying your first home, planning to start a family, wondering how to make your money grow? Well, Western and Southern's playbook of life insurance, investment, and retirement solutions helps you rest assured on game day. Team up to understand needs and address goals with a game plan built just for you. Get started at westernsouthern.com slash PFF. It's not an ad read. I was just talking no, to I mean, about Western yeah, Southern. It Our sounds friends. a lot like an ad read, but... No, no, it was really natural. I was just, just talking, just spitballing okay. some ideas, what you should do. WesternSouthern.com slash PFF. E- email came in the, from the Western and Southern studio over there. A little, uh, little plaque on the wall. Yep. Um, this email came in from a guy called John Shane. Hi, Sam and Steve. Love the podcast, but every now and again, one of you gets on a roll with a specific take without exploring the easily available evidence. Case in point, Steve, Chiefs over-invested in the offensive line narrative. The Chiefs' starting offensive line last season was Orlando Brown, Joe Tooney, Creed Humphrey, Trey Smith, and Lucas Niang slash Andrew Wiley. Uh, 2022 looks to be the same group. The Orlando Brown trade was worth roughly the 23rd or 25th overall pick, depending on the value chart you use. So let's call it a first-rounder. Here's the total offensive line cost, with and without a theoretical Orlando Brown deal, 110% of the Trent Williams deal. So Williams' 2021 is Brown's 2022. Total draft cost, one first. One second, Creed Humphrey. One third, Lucas Niang. One sixth, draft pick, uh, Trey Smith. Total 2021 cap hit, $18.6 million, which ranks 30th in the NFL. 2022, that goes up to about $34 million, 16th, or $26 million, which is 25th, uh, with an Orlando Brown extension, which often lowers cap hits rather than yeah, increases them at least in year one. 2023, we're up to 41 million with a deal, which is 11th. 2024, we're up to 55.7, which is the second most in the NFL. It only becomes high in 2024 when Tooney's contract becomes tradable or restructurable. So come on, it's ridiculous to say the Chiefs painted themselves into a corner with their offensive line moves. What they actually did was become cheaper. In 2019, they spent 30.6 million, which is 21st. And in 2020, they spent the ninth most. Arguably, they're trying to do the same thing at wide receiver. You can call these moves stupid or mistaken without the labyrinthine logic tying them all together. John, your rebuttal, dumbass. <laughs> I need to fact check the fact checker. <laughs> so I like the process of we'll give we'll 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 overcommit to Orlando Brown. We'll give him 110 percent of the Trent Williams contract. Like that's that's wonderful. Well done. Using over the cap as a source. Great source, Which too. Is that is the yeah. source to use mm-hmm. when it comes to NFL contract data. Correct. Great start there. Now, my problem is multiple folds here. When we're looking at 2021, his data is correct. They had a cheap offensive line. When we're looking at 2022, that data is somewhat up to date. That's fine. In 2023, using over the cap right now, Orlando Brown is on the franchise tag. So he's only technically under contract for 2022. Mm-hmm. And when I go to over the cap and I look at 2023 and their positional spending, which does not include Orlando Brown, they're not, I'm not getting the same rankings here. <laughs> when I look at 2023 and I look at the offensive line, the Chiefs are, where are they? Where'd they go? Uh, okay. This is going well. They are, they're at $25 million. What did he say that they were? He said that they were. He at said they'd 25. be at twenty six million. Yeah, and then forty one point two with. Oh, forty one million with the deal. So that's eleventh highest. Yeah. Yep. So that's pretty. But this is but this is what I'm talking about. That's that's actually making my point. 
This is this is hindering. They climb to 11th, and then the next year is when it gets really expensive, which is the point where Joe Tooney's contract becomes movable. But this is but this is what I'm this this is actually making my point. So his predictions for 2023 that they're going to be 11th in offensive line spending in 2023. In 2024, they're going to be second. That's part of this equation. That is part of this, right? You're trying to build a long-term winner around Patrick Mahomes. So the investment, just from a money standpoint, is going to be very high. And then when I look at the offensive line spending, let's, let's just look at 2022. Who's spending the most on the offensive line in 2022? And I look at one, two, three, four, five. There are, I don't know, two teams in, say, the top ten that are highest in offensive line spending that do not have a rookie contract quarterback. So the Bucks are up pretty high and the Cowboys are up pretty high. Offensive line spending, no rookie contract quarterback. Of course, the Bucks have Brady, who's making like $25 million per year, and, and he already got paid most of his money already. So all of these teams essentially have cheap quarterbacks. The Eagles have Jalen Hurts. The Cardinals are still with Kyle Murray. The Jets have Zach Wilson. The Lions... They're paying Goff. Okay, there's, there's, a, there's a team. The Ravens still have Lamar. The Colts, now they're, I don't know where all their money's going, but they've got most of Matt Ryan paid for. The Broncos just invested in Russell Wilson, so there's a little bit there. But most of these teams that are paying the most for their offensive lines have rookie contract quarterbacks. The Browns, the Jaguars, okay? So it's not apples to apples because you have a signed quarterback. So you're, you're not working with the same resource pool as some of these other teams in the ranking. Third, or second, or fourth, or whatever point I'm on right here. I think, um, who is this? John Shane mm-hmm. did a good job listing out the draft capital, but I think we need perspective there. You need the starting point of the Chiefs had the sixth lowest draft capital in the NFL last year, right? So you're already working from a depleted resource pool financially, and you're working from a depleted resource pool when it comes to draft capital. So they have the sixth lowest draft capital, and they use their two biggest assets, one first-rounder to get Orlando Brown, a second-rounder to get Creed Humphrey. Fine. Those, those picks are going to bring value to the team. But then you're left with a handful of less valuable other picks that then go to the rest of your roster. So when I say over-investing, it's not just financially. It's financially plus draft capital, in relation to all of your other draft picks, which have been at the lower end of the NFL. The whole point about the draft capital stuff is that it secures you cheap deals. So they've invested that draft capital, which has given them one year so far of tiny spending on the offensive line. Like They, they brought in Orlando Brown, they um, uh, draft Creed Humphrey, Lucas Niang, Trey Smith. Consequently, their 2021 spending on the offensive line was 30th in the NFL. Like, nothing, right? They had basically one of the cheapest offensive lines in the NFL because they spent that draft capital on these guys that have worked out. It also probably buys you at least one more year of really cheap offensive line work, even if you throw a ton of money at Joe Tooney and then Orlando Brown. If they do that deal, they end up with 25th in the NFL in 2022 in offensive line spending. So the investment has bought them two cheap years of offensive line play. And obviously with all of this stuff, it goes up like every all the contracts go up like the longer you have a guy on the roster the more he's making the more investment in that particular player and therefore position you're going to have as the years go on but part of this is you can restructure a lot of these deals and make 
that money not go away, but the cap hit go away or diminish dramatically. Um, so and now the value again, you're, in it, you, so you're you're advocating less flexibility, more work to just become cap compliant. When all I'm saying is the investment should go in more valuable players. I, I don't think that that's less, less, less flexibility. I think that's just the reality of how the NFL works in a lot of different situations. Like the point being that in this snapshot, which is essentially four years worth of this cycle in investment in the offensive line, they are going to end up with two cheap years, one year that's above average, and then one expensive year on, in terms of spending on the offensive line. Which two is fine. 23 and 24 are going to be crazy expensive. I mean, 11th out of 32 teams above average. In what, 23? Yeah. And then by 24, you're already thinking about restructuring your next guys. Yeah. Yeah, 23 and 24. So but the 11, year, 11th with the Mahomes yeah, so the four years, is really high, is the, what I'm saying. The four-year snapshot. It won't be by the time 2023 rolls around. Like, the cap is going up and up. Mahomes' deal isn't dramatically. His, it's not going to be that. Anyway, the point being, in a four-year snapshot, you've gotten one absurdly cheap year, one cheap year, one above-average year, and then one really expensive year that you're going to have to work on to pare down. That's not bad. That's certainly I, I not, think, like, hamstringing you. If you don't think do, – so here's, here's a question to you. Do you think that these moves along the offensive line or knowing what is going to be invested in Orlando Brown and what is invested in Joe Tooney have anything to do with Tyreek Hill getting traded? Do you think that had anything to do with it? Anything to do? Yeah. Okay. Does it mean that they were forced to do that? No. They're talking about – they're already talking – they've signed Marquez Valdez-Scantling, right? So $10 million, That's a third of the money you save from moving on from not – not from Tyreek's current deal, from the deal you didn't want to pay him, right? Sure. The deal Miami gave him. So sure. a third of that is immediately invalidated by signing Marquez Valdez-Scantling. You're also reportedly interested in making moves for a star wide receiver. So, well, how much of that is going to get? Like, are you going to – a DK Metcalf or whoever it is who's going to want a new contract? Like – that you, We're running out of space save from that is what I'm saying. If you're bringing in Valdez-Scantling and another guy, we're rapidly running out of saved cap room from Tyree Kills, even the deal that you hadn't given him yet. No, I get it. So that part I get. At which what point I, you can't be like, oh, the offensive line had, forced him to trade away Tyreek. So like I had, I, had this, I had a little chat with Eric the other day asking about this, right? When we were joking last week about it sounds like he's just trying to uh, – He's a little in denial, and he's trying to justify it and all that stuff. And his point was, you you can't go backwards. I, I've just trying. I'm trying to explain that you I you can't go backwards. Like you can't go back a year and say, well, the Chiefs should have done X, Y, and Z, but you know, whatever. Right. So that's Dallas's problem. Right? Given given the situation that the Chiefs have right now, can you make the balance sheet work, Tyree Kill for? All of the money saved plus five actual draft picks. Absolutely, right? Like, easy to justify that. Yeah. All I'm saying is I think there's a, there's a fair discussion to be had that we can back up a year, and I do think that the moves that they made put us in this got, – got them in this point. The fact that all of last year's investment went into the offensive line when I would have spent – enough to be good along the offensive line and would have spent more well, hey, receiver. I don't understand. What does that look like in a way that's cheaper than last year? Because last year's offensive line cost them nothing. 
It was the cheap, it was the thirtieth cheapest offensive line in the NFL. So what moves could they have made? You would have more long term flexibility too, and you wouldn't have. There, there's like would, no there's no long term flexibility more. There's why nothing, couldn't? Why were they a million dollars short on Juju Smith Schuster last year? There's nothing because they weren't. They got the, they offered the same deal to than Pittsburgh, and he didn't want to take it because apparently it was a safer option to go back to Big Ben. I, but point being. Playmaker should have been more of a priority than left guard. What could you possibly have done to that offensive line that would have made it, given you more flexibility than having essentially three starters on a rookie deal earning almost nothing? Matt Filer not trading the first round pick for Orlando Brown. What was your alternative at left tackle? I mean, look, I don't have all the options sitting there in front of me. (laughs) Okay, so the one thing, the one thing you could have done is instead of giving Joe Tooney a market-leading contract, give Matt Filer whatever that was, like a half the price, a third of the price, somewhere yeah. that, 40% of the price, somewhere in that range. Okay, fine. So you've saved $12 million and you've, got, you've gone from having the 30th most expensive offensive line to the 32nd most expensive offensive line, otherwise known as the cheapest. What did that do? Um, I don't know why... It- so why are they moving on from Tyreek Hill? Because those I because don't know. Those, I've been arguing against it since it came out. But it's because those they're going to be sitting here a couple years ago saying, who on the team's making twenty plus million dollars a year? And it's going to be Mahomes and Chris Jones and Frank Clark's out and Orlando Brown's in and Joe Tooney's in. And at some point, you run out of spots for twenty plus million dollar players. Correct. And I'm saying if two of the spots of twenty, forget the totality of the offensive line for a minute. If two of the spots on the Chiefs uh, balance sheet are twenty million of twenty million dollar plus players. If two of them are offensive linemen, then you're not deploying your resources properly. Now, if they circle back and they get DK Metcalf and they find a way to pay him his twenty or whatever, fine. But I think I think that's worth it more than having two of the two of your four spots of twenty million dollar plus players being Joe Tooney and Orlando Brown. And by the way, Orlando Brown also came with, with a first with a. First contract, first rounder. I think you have to. You can't look at it and say, "Oh, two offensive linemen." So, if I don't know what that number actually is, right? How many spots you can dedicate to like a twenty million dollar type of player? If it's four or five or whatever it is, I don't think you can look at it and say, "Well, two of them shouldn't be offensive linemen." Otherwise, it's done incorrectly. If the other three offensive linemen are earning nothing, which is the point. Like Kansas City has three offensive linemen earning peanuts, and the other two are paid a ton of money. All right. Well, if you're if you're good at that, find another one that's earning peanuts. Have a just have an offensive line because you want your offensive line to be just good enough. But it's you not, don't need a great offensive line. Agreed. Again, the, I'm going back to the mentality of it too. The mentality was we want to have a great offensive line, so everything's going into the offensive I don't line. Think that was the mentality of it. The mentality of it is everything they did last offseason was to fix the offensive line. Yeah, but that's different to, to saying, the detriment of the rest of the roster. No. That's entirely different from saying this needs to be the best offensive line in the NFL. They found themselves in a situation where all of a sudden they had to replace five starters, two of which weren't their fault. Their left tackle tears his Achilles in the AFC title game, and their right tackle has what looks like a career-ending injury as of now, right? Mitchell Schwartz just busy in Switzerland right now, chilling, chewing watch factories and eating fondue. Like, he's not playing. So, What's up, Mitch? I know you're listening. So you've got... Uh, five starters that need to be replaced on that offensive line. That's not, oh, let's, in order for us to save face and not have a repeat of the Super Bowl, we need to assemble the five greatest offensive linemen in the game has seen. Let's throw all the money at this. It was, no, we need to come up with five new starters. We basically need to attack this in every single platform. We need to hit it in free agency. We need to hit it in trades. And we need to hit it in the draft. And as it happened, 
they did that and nailed everything, which is a freaking miracle. But And their offense got worse. Independent, that's besides the point. The point being that they needed to throw that much resource at the offensive line, not because they wanted it to be amazing, but because they had an entire offensive line to build in three months. That's a part of it. And they sure. didn't – and they haven't gone and done it by spending – like, they could have gone out and got five starters in free agency and overpaid all of them and all of a sudden had, like, the most expensive offensive line in the NFL. They didn't do that. They all had I'm one of the cheapest. When we're talking resources and expensive, it involves the money spent plus the draft capital relative to their allotment of picks, right, their top two picks out of the, the sixth lowest allotment of draft capital using, you know, at least one measurement. That all has to be factored in. So, yeah, I mean, maybe they were backed into a corner to a point, and they had to, they had to do that along the offensive line. But I'm saying all of that happened to the detriment of the rest of the roster. And then the downstream effect of that, Tyree Kill gets traded, where I think there's a world where they could still have Tyree Kill, have a better receiving core, have a good enough offensive line. I don't know. I don't have the exact path to think- that, but I think there's a different path that could have been taken to where the Chiefs would have been better both in the short and the long term. Given where they were as of last week, where at this time last week they made the Tyreek Hill trade, perfectly fair that you can say the Chiefs last Wednesday versus this Wednesday, you can make the argument that not having Tyreek Hill, having Marquez Valdez-Scantling, more potential money, plus five picks over the next two years, will make the Chiefs better in the long term. You can make that argument. I think there was a better path to be made a year ago, though. I mean, my point is simply that I think there's a wor- there's that world exists right now or existed right until you traded away Tyreek Hill. Like there's literally no reason they couldn't have achieved that as of now. 2023, if you look at their biggest cap hits, right? We're talking about how many of those players can you have making 20 million dollars a season? Obviously Mahomes is number 1. Yep. Number 2 is Chris Jones on the hook for an absolute ton of money. That would be one of your five, right? If you're allocating 20 plus million dollar deals on the Chiefs, Chris Jones is one of those guys. Uh, Frank Clark is one of those guys. Now, Frank Clark's not going to be there next year, which is currently going to free up $28.7 million in cap space for 2023, right? $19 million. 27. Cap savings, 19.6. That's his, okay, but his cap number right now is yeah, $28 yeah. million. Dollars. It'll be $10 million of It'll dead be dead money. money. Okay, $19 million. The point being, he right now for 2023 is on the hook for basically the money that Tyreek Hill was looking for, Right. Yeah, so I mean, you're that's immediately another, that's another up. issue. That's a previous issue. Yeah. Right, but next year, the point, like next year, which is when that money is going to be relevant, because whatever re, whatever extension of Tyreek Hill of Tyreek Hill's contract you were going to do would have lowered this number this year, 2022. It would have increased likely 2023 and beyond. That's the year. Let so me, you're getting rid of Frank Clark. Two thirds of his money is what you're extending Tyreek Hill for. The other third is what he was already earning. So you literally, the Frank Clark move on its own pays for Tyreek Hill. You're not counting Orlando Brown. He'll be up at 20 here. It's, that's Orlando Brown's money. But he's already on the hook. For he's not, not. He's on the hook for nothing in 2023. But 2022, he's already on the, money, on the hook for a decent sum of money. 18, yeah. Yeah, you're, just kick, you're moving that money to next year because you're going to lower the $18 million guaranteed to almost nothing because you're re-extending his deal. You're just shifting the money around. Again, my point being, the five guys There's you want to earn $20-plus million, Mahomes, Chris Jones, Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Hill, they're, dead. they're the right guys. There's one more point to this whole thing, though. I've, I've criticized this from a process standpoint. And if you're going to do it from a process standpoint, the Chiefs made these moves, Orlando Brown, Joe Tooney, ahead of actually knowing 
they were going to hit on Creed Humphrey in the second round, Trey Smith in the sixth round, right? So from a process standpoint, if you tried to replicate that, are you actually going to find your 10-year starter at center in the second round? Are you actually going to find maybe a gem in the sixth round? So, like, good on them. They hit, but anticipating that you're going to hit and all of a sudden have two rookie starters that you're going to have for the next four years, you don't know that that's going to happen. So, I've again, I've criticized the process that got us to this point because if they did it again, there's a chance they're not finding those starters and they still have to deploy more resources yeah, along the offensive line. Again, I think you're We've blaming, gone on a long time on this. But again, though. I think you're blaming them for things that aren't their fault. Like they went into – they were expecting to go into a, an offseason with two or three offensive linemen to replace. They all of a sudden went into an offseason with five needing to replace, at which point – I mean, whatever like nice – like whatever uh, – logical, methodical plan you had for repairing three offensive linemen goes to hell where that number becomes five, at which point you just have to start throwing everything at it. So, yeah, they went hard immediately for their first, for Orlando Brown because the alternative was probably using that draft pick to draft the worst player. They went hard for Joe Tooney because they needed to add somebody in free agency because you can't go into a draft with five offensive linemen needing to find. So, yeah, like... Generally speaking, you don't want to be in this position where you have to find five offensive linemen in an offseason. On the other hand, 40% of that wasn't their fault. So I, I, how hard do you want to criticize them for that? As hard as I have criticized them. Overly so, apparently. Look, we could debate this all day, but the only true guaranteed quality pickup this season is Manscaped. <laughs> the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. It's like they wrote this just for us. With Manscaped's Performance Package 4.0, your skill position will be sleek and smooth enough for a sub-4340. Support us and head to manscaped.com. And use the exclusive code PFF at checkout for 20% off plus free shipping. Because of their ceramic blade and skin-safe technology, your nicks and snags will be reduced. In the season of trimming, the roster mans... Jeez. Uh, yeah, maybe that's the first time I've looked at this. It might be. In the season of trimming the roster, mm-hmm. Manscaped will make sure you're cutting the right players and not any important pieces no. to your D. That's what, that's what it says. Okay. Like defense. or Look, fellas, don't fall off her draft board. The ladies out there think long nose hair is a major turnoff. We got the Weed Whacker nose and ear hair trimmer. That's your solution. Why not use the best tools for the job there? April is draft season. That's right. But it's also testicular cancer awareness month manscaped is partnered with the testicular cancer society to bring awareness to testicular cancer men's health and early cancer detection get 20 percent off and free shipping with the code pff at manscapes.com it's 20 percent off plus free shipping at manscapes.com use the code pff turn your mr irrelevant to a first round pick with manscaped now this is a perfect read for the mm. next month here that's mm-hmm. perfect my transition is going to be so good. All right, that was beautiful. The only true guaranteed quality pickup this season is Manscaped. It is. And the promo code PFF. All right, what else do you have here? Uh, okay, what do we got this time? Um, Wait, we have a tweet. Huh. Somebody tweeted us. I am a lifelong Chiefs fan. Tate, this is Tate. Lifelong Chiefs fan and lover of all things O-line, but PFF Steve, that's me, could not be more right on this Chiefs take. The Joe Tooney contract truly keeps me up at night. No way they move on from Hill if Tooney was paid a reasonable contract. Stop. It. All right, go ahead. Next. Uh, okay, this one is about um, generally. So I've been pushing this idea that for Derek Stingley Jr., um, the fact that he played at that insane elite level in 2019 
is more important than the year he did that in because of everything we know about cornerback play and how volatile it is year to year and the fact that even elite players can have not so great seasons, right? We've seen that in the NFL. Guys, that you, Jalen Ramsey went from 2017 Jalen Ramsey, arguably the best corner in the NFL. Years in between, not so much. Last year, Jalen Ramsey, best corner in the NFL again, right? He had down years in between. So the, simply showing that play as a draft prospect is way more important than doing it in this most recent season. And I think that there might be value to be had by looking at a guy like Stingley and watching him slide in the draft and being like, hell yeah. Like, okay, you pass up on him for other corners. We're not doing that. Jumping on the, the best talent in the draft at the cornerback position. So this guy, who we got, David from Greenville, South Carolina, he uh, said the other day about one of the top cornerback prospects, Derek Stingley, that he hadn't, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, my question is, what other positions other than cornerback have the highest volatility year to year? And do you think this is an area teams can use to their advantage on draft day? To identify players that have had relative down years in their final year before entering the draft, uh, but they play a position that tends to have more volatility so they can try and select them ahead of where other teams may have that player in the board. As a fan, I'm more just wanting to know what players' positions I should still get excited about, even though they didn't show the kind of linear upward trajectory each year in college that we typically want to see. What do you think? Um, I think linebacker follows a lot of the same rules that corner does in terms of that position volatility and safety, like the back seven, basically. Anything that's... Yeah. Anything that's heavily rooted in coverage is inherently more volatile than anything else because you are basically at the mercy of the offenses you're facing a lot of the time. You can be in good position as a corner, linebacker, or safety, but if the quarterback knows what he's doing and if the receiver's good, there's a window to hit and they hit them and you're screwed. There's nothing, basically nothing you can do about it. So I think those positions will be the first ones I was looking for. Um, generally, though, I think the other positions, I think you're right to be scared by years that don't like years, bad years at the end. Unless there's, if you can't explain the bad year, I like his entire supporting cast abandoned it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, and I think you're right to be scared by that. Yeah. So I agree with you on the, the, the back seven positions, right? And look, when, so I do a lot of work in this area where I try to go back and say, and, and look at the things that best project from college to the NFL. We've have, I'm not the only one. A lot of people within the company do that, right? We do a lot of work in this area. Also, you know, in the NFL. Oh, and the NFL does that as well. <laughs> it's, it's a topic that's come up over the last, you know, yes. 70 years. Or I mean, it's what everybody's trying to solve, of course. How do you project players to the NFL? And I di- you could definitely look at the PFF data and say you can, you can find a weakness at corner, linebacker, or safety, both uh, within the NFL or from college to the NFL. But you made the point, right? It might not just be a PFF issue. It is probably just a football issue. It is. I think it's the way football is. In a yeah. game with all the moving parts and all that stuff, the least stable positions is the back seven, generally what happens in coverage. Um, I was even having this debate or discussion yesterday um, with some people about the quarterback position. They're working on, um, I can't say who at the moment, but working on this quarterback hmm. documentary, right? And quarterback is... Obviously, the most important position in football, probably the most pos- important position in sports, but it's also incredibly dependent as a position, right? I mean, there's there's no other sport. Let's let's discuss other sports. How many other sports have as much dependency on your production as football? Even at the most important position, that is the driver of all production or most production, quarterback. 
you still have to have receivers in an offensive line and all that stuff, which is why we're debating this stuff, right? The Chiefs debate is, you have Patrick Mahomes, what's the best way to maximize his value? Where do you deploy your offensive resources or defensive resources? So all positions in football have a level of dependency. I would say the back seven has even more, which does make you think the, the Derek Stingley example is a, is a great one because he's shown high-end play. He had, using our wins above average metric, the best season we've ever seen from a corner. He did it as a freshman. He looked like a surefire Jalen Ramsey, Patrick Peterson type of prospect. And the fact that he didn't look like that on the field, plus had injuries over the last two years, does that lower his value? Yes. Does it increase the risk? Yes. Is that a risk worth taking? Absolutely, because what's the payoff, right? Having a top five corner is probably the, the you know one of the most it's one of the most valuable things to have in the nfl right now behind a quarterback a, a wide receiver one and i would say you know quarterback corner corner one that you know is a top five guy and to your point top five guy doesn't mean you're going to be locked down every single year it just means you have a you know better chance than than others to be really really good in a given year so i like that from a Derek stingley standpoint i got another position what else you got running back same logic different uh, manifestation but running backs are so dependent on everything else so running backs could easily have a down year based off the fact that you know maybe the blocking wasn't as good as the year before maybe their passing game was ass and everybody just stacked the box to stop the running back every again everyone wants to see running backs go on this big linear progression or at least just be elite every year if you have a guy coming off a bad year but his situation got massively worse around him who cares it shouldn't affect what you think about that running back now Again, like the running back, the whole point about that being, well, then how much do you want to invest in a guy based off, you know, how changeable his performance is with the circumstance around him. But if you really like a running back and you can see a good reason for his production dropping off in a year because of everything you know about running back dependency, you shouldn't be scared away from that. Yeah, I mean, I saw something come across the timeline the other day on Pittsburgh radio. Our guy Brad Spielberger talked about, um, I think he said that Najee Harris was the worst first-round pick mm. last year. Um, and he wasn't even the first running back, first the worst first-round running back pick last year. Right. So, so Brad was wrong. He corrected himself later. He said no, it was Travis Etienne, and then he said Najee's second. Double. You know, he said he's second, and I got tagged in it somehow or whatever. And somebody said, you know, you idiots from PFF, mm. Najee was a great hit. Like there, you know. LOL, there are still people who think Najee wasn't a good pick. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, it, it depends on what you're looking at as far as evidence goes, right? So the evidence I would bring to the table there is the guy that Najee replaced was James Conner. And James Conner, who, you know, I think Pittsburgh fans were like, well, he's not good enough, right? We can't, can't have a run game with James Conner. How are you going to, you know, you can't build around that guy. Well, he signed for $1.5 million, went to the Arizona Cardinals, averaged a very similar 3.7 yards per attempt, but he had 16 touchdowns, right? I mean, like, Najee Harris averaged 3.9 yards per, per attempt. I mean, just the production was almost the same. From yeah. James Conner, $1.5 million free agent, to Najee Harris, first-round running back. And again, I like Najee as a player. I mean, look. Pittsburgh's he added run. something to the pass game and all that. <laughs> the, Najee, the, the funny thing about that pick is how obvious it was that it was going to be that pick the whole way through, right? It's like, oh, Pittsburgh, 
worst rushing offense in the NFL. 32nd in terms of rushing yards total as an offense, 32nd in terms of yards per attempt. They had the worst rushing offense in football in 2019. <clears throat> so it's like, or sorry, 2020. So it's like, oh, so we'll, we'll, we'll fix that with a running back. We need a first-round running back. That will fix the running game. And through the entire process, we're like, that's not the way the running game works. You're going to need to actually improve the building blocks of the running game, like the offensive line, like the quarterback, you know, the thing that makes your offense a threat everywhere, not just the stack, uh, stack against the line of scrimmage. So they didn't do that. They went and just drafted a first-round running back. It was like, well, perfect, fixed, done. And it moved them from 32nd in the NFL in every rushing category to 29th in the NFL in every rushing category. 29th in rushing yards, 29th in yards per attempt. It's like, okay. Bad offense remained a bad offense. What did Najee Harris achieve on his own? He moved you from the 32nd best rushing offense in the game to the 29th. That did nothing. It essentially had zero impact whatsoever. 32 to 29, it's a rounding error. It didn't, didn't move the needle. So, yeah, Najee Harris is a great player. But the point being, who cares? That's why, it's a bad, that's why it was always going to be a bad first-round pick. Because it wasn't going to achieve what you wanted it to achieve. And despite evidence that it didn't do that, there's still Pittsburgh fans out there going, perfect, great pick, outstanding. No, it just wasn't. I know. I agree. Okay. That's great. Good. Well said. I, so that I've always thought that those those are the types of places where the NFL might be able to find value by not. So, so when a guy has a better season than expected, or a season that is driven by other factors. You let those guys walk. You don't overcommit to those, and yeah. then you buy the guys when when they're. Um, low from a value standpoint. So now I feel like Arizona. Arizona went from James Conner, who by PFF WAR had a really, I mean, he had a good rushing grade. He had a really good WAR relative to other quarter, uh, rece- uh, running backs last year, and he did it for one point five million dollars. That's great. Mm-hmm. But then they just re-upped him, yeah, to a contract. Right? He took the wrong lesson from that. Yeah, process. like their best bet would have been. Hopefully, some team like overpays for his 16 touchdowns. You yeah. don't let that be the team, and you know, you know, maybe that gets into the comp pick, comp pick formula and all that stuff, yeah. whatever. But it doesn't matter. Like, just don't overcommit to a guy where Arizona. You get touchdowns as a runner when you're a part of a good offense, more or less. That's generally what happens when you have more opportunities inside the red zone. Um, but yeah, I think there's some value in in those positions, and you know, guys coming off bad years. Yeah, I mean, literally the the whole the learn the point that James Conner was able to do what he did last year is the reason you don't pay for running backs because you can bring a guy that's coming off a bad year through circumstances that aren't necessarily his fault, put him in an offense, and he gets 16 touchdowns in the right circumstance. Like that's why you don't pay a guy seven million dollars a year to do that. And they took the exact opposite teaching from that and gave him the money. Um, next email. Uh, this person who we got, John, loyal listener from the UK. That's uh, those across-the-pond people in your uh, your parlance. Nailed it. Steven Sam, love the discussion today highlighting that top-tier quarterbacks are undervalued despite the huge salaries they earn. 
I edited one of these emails dramatically just to get to the point, and I can't remember which one it is. It might be this one. Uh, it struck me that this might be even more true for top coaches. That's because while the quarterback can be a force multiplier for the offense, in theory a great coach, especially one who's great at creating excellence throughout his whole coaching staff, can elevate the level of all the players on the roster. And at present, they're underpaid when compared to quarterbacks. For example, even the greatest of all time, Belichick, is paid considerably less than Sam Darnold. Uh, my question to you is, can you use data to show this in the same way we were using war to illustrate that the best quarterbacks add more wins than the rest of the roster combined? John, um, I would actually broaden this and say not only is there an edge to be had in paying coaches a ton of money, I think basically everything that isn't limited by the salary cap is an open day for owners to go nuts and spend. Like years ago, um, you know, friend of the show, Nate Tice, Nate Tice's dad, Mike Tice. Yeah. Coach of the Minnesota Vikings, back when Red McCombs was the owner and was milking that franchise as essentially just an investment vehicle. So he was just there to sit on it for a while, watch the inflation of NFL franchises. Like the, the Broncos are currently for sale, apparently, for $4 billion, right? When somebody bought, I think when Red McCombs bought the Vikings, it was like a couple hundred million or something, right? Yeah, a drop of the hat. Yeah. yeah so like the, but the point, the inflation, the, the value of these things is absolutely skyrocketing. So that dude just wanted to sit there, squat on the franchise essentially for a while, wait till the, the percent return had flown through the roof, you know, throw as little money at it as humanly possible and just flip it for a return on his, on his investment, right? He was in it for, for money-making. And consequently, he wanted to spend very little on, you know, things like coaches where it's, it's your money. It's money coming out of your pocket to do things to make this thing go. And all it's, all it's doing, quote-unquote, is you know, making a difference to how likely you are to win, which is something he didn't really care about. So, you know, Mike Tice would have situations where, like, his assistants got hired away from him and he wasn't given a budget to replace them. Like, he had to just do it himself. Like, his job just increased because there, were, there was no budget left to hire additional coaches. I would say if you're a rich owner, you know, Carolina, right, David Tepper, richest owner in the NFL by a fact, a more order of magnitude, I believe, has like an absolute ton of cash on hand, you know? That dude should be out there spending as much money as possible on his head coach, on his coaching budget. Like, not only do you pick the guy, but that you tell the guy, dude, you have a blank check. Go sign whoever the hell you want to be coaches. And, you know, that thing I've said before, like the, the veteran quarterback that's just taken up a roster spot because you want him in the building, go make that guy the best-paid assistant QB coach on the planet yeah. just to get him in the room and free up a roster spot. Whoever it is, you know, the Sean Mannion, right? The Vikings are re-signing Sean Mannion because Kirk Cousins likes him, right? Essentially, he's good in the room. Cousins likes him. Finished. Done. Hire that guy. That guy has no business being on an NFL field. Go make him the same offer to be an assistant coach and just sit in the room. And not take up a roster spot. Exactly. And not eat up a roster spot that you could use somewhere else. That's what they should be doing that with coaches. They should be doing that in facilities. You know, go and build the best facility to make your place uh, a desirable venue, to make it an attractive option for free agents, to actually just move the needle in terms of, you know, recovery, in terms of preparation, whatever. Spend as much money as possible in areas where it's not restricted because you have this very hard restriction on how much you can spend in salary cap. If the goal is maximize wins. Correct. If the goal is maximize wins, absolutely. I think there's something to be said look, for all there, of that. There have to be coaches out there, or not coaches, there have to be owners out there who do care about wins. Because yeah. 
as much as the NFL is like a cheat code for um, for maximum money, right? It, massive return, the investment spikes on the actual asset. It's a tax write-off because somehow the thing is like a, they're like a registered what is it a registered charity, whatever it is. They don't, they don't have to pay taxes on it. It's like a tax write-off, so they can. I'm very very specifically trying not to use the term laundering money, but. You know, they're, they're able to avoid massive amounts of tax by owning NFL teams, which makes, helps make them money, right? So every single NFL owner is invested in just having the thing because it makes them more cash. But there also have to be people like Tepper who were so rich anyway. What the hell does it matter? Like you're actually in it to try and win football games and championships and all those kinds of things, at which point use your money. Yeah. I mean, look, if you're trying to maximize wins, I agree with all that stuff you said. I would take it the, – the, the other thing I would say is if you can identify a head coach, that's really good. Pay him, right? But the position coach is especially at crucial positions, right? So as much as we, we talk about the moves along the offensive line, I think there's a pretty good history of really good offensive line coaches. Like guys who wherever they go, like the Bill Callahans of the world, they just make – their offensive line better, right? So I would focus, um, or positions like we talked about with the volatility. I'm gonna, I'll take this one a step further, right? If I was, so like a great secondary coach or a great receivers coach, right? All of those position groups, like would I invest in a great linebackers coach? Maybe not, but secondary receiver, offensive line, I think there might be more investment in the quarterback position and separating those skill sets into. Um, guys who focus on actually increasing performance for the quarterback, and then there's a quarterback coach whose job is to like get you ready for the game plan and all that stuff. Less of a mechanics coach, right? Would you have more mechanics coaches? Would you have more people um, that just focus on technique? And then, because gen- generally your coaches are there to get you ready to play football, understand the scheme, maximize your ability within what the offense is doing, and that is a different skill set from teaching technique. So you can invest in actual technique coaches and guys that are going to make you better individually, whereas the position coaches generally make you better as part of the team. So I think that's one thing. The second thing I'll say, which goes back to the last question as well, when we've, when we've put the draft boards together historically here at PFF, we've done it in a, in a way different from teams where I think we start from this baseline of our data right, and, and of grades and then move guys up and down based off what we see and the context and all that stuff. Whereas like within an NFL organization right now, a scout goes out and he sees the player and they, and they put grades on the players and then everybody else within the organization puts grades on players. And then like analytics is kind of like baked in on top and off field. All that stuff gets added to the mix and you get this final player grade. If I was running an organization, I would, I would probably evaluate most pit positions differently. I would actually start from production, right? which is the equivalent of saying, here's our height, weight, speed parameters, right? Give me guys within this bucket. I would start with production parameters and then move guys up and down from that point. However, in the places that are not great at projecting people from a data standpoint, what if you just found, like, is, as tough as it is to project cornerbacks, is there a scout out there somewhere who's just awesome historically at grading corners, Right awesome at grading receivers right so find where our weaknesses are find somebody where there's a strength there's no data there's not a lot of good data points that project corners and receivers and linebackers but are there scouts or certain people out there that have a great history there 
And I think that's an edge to be had. So then you have the data edge and you have the scouting edge, and I think that's how you blend those things. Yeah, I mean, if I was an NFL owner that actually cared about winning a Super Bowl, I would have the most expensive to run NFL franchise in the NFL. Those guys, the NFL collectively shared out almost $9 billion in revenue amongst the 32 teams, right? Just the amount that they, the, the shared revenue that isn't, is independent of the stuff you get, you know, in your own market, the, the stuff that Jerry Jones pioneered, right? The individual deals, the stuff that's just Dallas Cowboys that, that isn't shared amongst the other 32 or the other 31 franchises. So they're taking home almost $300 million just in shared revenue every single season. Obviously, there are overheads and all this kind of stuff, but it's a money-making machine independent of what it does for you from a tax write-off standpoint and a value asset in appreciating in value every year type of scenario. You're printing money owning an NFL team. So if you care about winning games, you can't overspend. You can't go out and buy the best quarterback in the NFL because there's a salary cap. You can't just go out there and, and bid you know, like it's not like soccer where you can just go if you if you're PSG and you suddenly get taken over by a Gulf oil state, you have more money than everybody else. You can just go and buy the best players. You can just go and say, we're going to buy Neymar from Barcelona for an amount of money that they simply can't match. And you can short circuit. You can cheat, essentially. Just yeah. money lets you cheat the system. Can't do that in the NFL because there's a hard salary cap on how much you can spend on players. There's no salary cap on what you can spend on all the other stuff, though, coaches, facilities, scouts, like you just said, scouting systems. Like, the idea that you would ever penny pinch over, like, how much money is invested in, you know, your analytics or your scouting or all these little things that give you an edge, potentially. Now, they might not. And, you know, nobody ever became a giant billionaire because they just gave everybody a blank checkbook and right. said, go nuts in your, in your business. Right. There but, are business decisions to be made right. there. But this is different, right? It's not a regular Fortune 500 company where the idea is profit share, you know, profit maximization to give to dividends and shareholders and blah, blah. This is like, I own this thing. The sole purpose of it, it's going to make money anyway. The sole purpose of it otherwise is to win. Otherwise, yeah. why am I here? And if you're actually there to win, you should be spending as much as you have and all this other stuff. The one other piece of this question was, can you use data to show this? And our guy Tej did, did some work last summer on essentially wins added from coaches and all that stuff. Now, I will say, I, you know, I think I mentioned this to Tej offline, but it did seem that a lot of the coaches that added the most wins historically also had the best quarterbacks in the NFL. So sitting near the top was Belichick and Andy Reid. And beyond that, like the only coach that was up there who was not always saddled with an elite quarterback was John Harbaugh. And, right. he's, and he has one year of elite quarterback play. But that, that, and that becomes like a chicken or the egg type of thing, right? Belichick created this environment that could create Tom Brady, right, that, that built Tom Brady. Did Andy Reid foster this environment that helped create Patrick Mahomes and Harbaugh did the same for Lamar and all that stuff? So they probably have some value there. But then you have the other side of the coin where it's like, well, what's Brady been? I mean, what's Belichick been since Brady's left? And then Brady went to Bruce Arians, who was like a mid-tier coach, and all of a sudden is a Super Bowl winning coach, right? So... So my point is, when those, when those coaches are elevated to the top, chances are there's a little cross. There's, there's maybe too much crossover. We haven't separated the quarterback from the rest of the roster enough in that type of analysis. The only thing I would say about the kind of cap on head coach spending is you can generally go out there and kind of 
by quote unquote assistant coaches, you know, because those guys are relatively free to move and there's a marketplace for them. Once an NFL coach is hired, he's not like Bill Belichick doesn't hit free agency. You know, they re-up him before his contract is done. He never gets to the point where you as the Miami Dolphins or whoever, you can't come in with an offer that blows the Patriots out of the water and spend more and bring in the head coach. If you want Bill Belichick, you have to trade for him like he's a player, which has very rarely been done. I mean, Tampa Bay did it for John Gruden. It's happened, but it's not common. So that's one reason, I think, why you don't see this explosion of, hey, just go and buy the best coach and make that happen. Where I think the edge really is, is everything from the head coach down or in the other departments within the building, right? The analytics department, the scouting network. You should have the most robust and expensive scouting network because why not? All right, let's get to this left tackle, right tackle question. Uh, This came through late. I wanted to add add to it. Uh, I wanted to add it to the mix. Uh, Jonathan Hirsch had a bunch of questions, some other ones that maybe we could circle back to, but this one... I thought it was good for the show. Another draft-related question here from Jonathan. He says, offensive line gurus. Puts this in air quotes, hmm. right? Gurus like Duke Bennyweather, associate of the show, <laughs> and Brandon Thorne, seem to have significant concern over the ability of offensive linemen to easily and smoothly transition from left tackle to another position, at least to the point where you can't take for granted that they will be able to do it. While I understand that players like Evan Neal could easily be projected at multiple positions because he has already played three different positions in college, Thank you, PFF Draft Guide. Many others, such as Charles Cross, have only played left tackle. So what data do you have going back to PFF's inception in 2014 that can track the success rate for offensive linemen who have switched positions in the NFL? So that's 2014 of college data. Um, And he basically just says, you know, obviously you guys have uh, confidence in players being able to move positions because of, say, Iki Iquanu being mocked to the Giants. He's a left tackle who projects as either a guard or a right tackle for the Giants because they already have a left tackle. So he's asking about the actual data there. Um, so I don't. I, I, we can go before we started our college football data, to be honest. And I did this years ago when I did a left tackle, right tackle study in like 2013 or so. And basically the point of the series of articles back then is left and right tackle are just as valuable in today's NFL and that you can move them. And remember the things that we've heard throughout the years. Yes, Duke and Brandon, I think, are two of the more vocal guys where I don't think they're not saying it's impossible. They're just saying don't take it for granted, which again, like I get it. Like there's nuance to this stuff. Acquaintance of the show. Acquaintance of the show. Is that better? What did I say? Associate? Yes. Yeah. That's not. Acquaintance. Or whatever. You know, they're all just... like we run into Duke. We uh, take pictures. <laughs> and then he comes back to Twitter with his <laughs> um, attacks, basically. So, yeah. Acquaintance. Um, he does good work with mm. uh, offensive linemen, but clearly, you know, there's probably some bias to his own guys, maybe. So, I mean, here's your simple analysis. I just looked at the best right. So I did this years ago, and I did it very high level. I said, who are the best right tackles in the NFL? And at the time, it was something like, of the 10 best right tackles back in 12 and 13 or whatever, six or seven of them had played left tackle in college. So I just did this again. Who are the highest graded right tackles in the NFL over the last couple of years? Uh, Ryan Ramchek's number one. Where did he play in college? Left tackle. Mitchell Schwartz is number two. He's, he was on the list in 2013, too. He was a left tackle in college. Lane Johnson, left tackle in college, I believe. Tristan Wirfs played both in college, most recently left tackle. Lyle Collins played left tackle in college, also played guard in the NFL. Jack Conklin, 
He was a left tackle in college, right? Yeah. Hmm. I just I did most of these off the top of my head. Braden Smith was a right guard. Michael Unwanu uh, and uh, uh, Wanu from the Patriots. He was a guard, right? So that th- those are rare moves, guard to tackle. Uh, Taylor Mouton, he was a right tackle in college. Moton. Moton. We're back to Moton. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where else? Uh, Rob Havenstein. He was a right tackle. So, but like most, the other guys that, that just happened to be on the list, uh, Mike McGlinchey was a right tackle. Orlando Brown was a left tackle. Trent Brown was a left tackle. Marcus Cannon was a right tackle. So I'm just going down the list, and like, there's a lot of left tackles that have transitioned very smoothly to right tackle in the NFL. But i got more to add, but you go. That's probably... There's probably a selection bias in that, right? And that the college landscape generally treats those – they treat like offensive line almost like a hierarchy, right? And unlike the NFL where you can sort of plug one guy in, the 10-year starter thing. There's no 10-year starters in college, obviously, because they come in, they go through their eligibility, and they go to the draft or just leave. Um, so every couple of years you've got you to cycle through to a new guy. So it's almost like, well, we have this hierarchy of left tackle is the most important, then right tackle. So you get these guys that are sort of waiting for their opportunity. And it's like, well, our two alternatives right now are this guy sits on the bench for a year or two waiting for you know, this guy to go to the NFL, or he's the next best guy we have, so let's play him at right tackle. So I think a lot of these players, they play left tackle and then move to right just because left tackle is seen as the most important position. That's where you put your best player. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, all these guys, like maybe the best right tackles should be right tackles. They just, they have that. The college landscape, I think, is warping how many of them play left tackle is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, look, I think, so I agree with the basic premise. Like, is there some risk in moving them to a different position? Yes. Like, Jedrick Wills was a right tackle in college, and the Browns said, well, we'll move him to left tackle. And he hasn't necessarily yeah. translated all that well so far at the NFL level. Is there some risk? Absolutely. And, and I, I think Duke and Brandon are generally nuanced with their takes. They would, I think they're smart enough not to say, like, this, it's impossible to move somebody. But you've also heard offensive linemen say that stuff before. Like, um, it's like throwing with the wrong hand. Like, it, it's not. It's not well, like throwing with the wrong hand. I also think, though, that this – we treat this as I don't need to have played offensive line to know that it's not like that it's not like throwing with the wrong hand but we treat this as if it's a universal constant as opposed to individual people are going to have dramatically different responses to this than other people right there are people out there that are so completely one-sided with how they do things there's just no way those guys are going to be able to flip sides and be anything like as good there are also people for whom it's almost nothing those guys, you know, there are people who can do it in the same game. There are colleges that still play like offensive strength and expect their tackles to flip sides based off the strength of the formation. Mackay which is Becton nuts to me. College. It's insane, yeah. but they do it and it works. And there are these guys that are fantastic. Yeah, you're right. Mackay Becton did it. Um, the there's somebody in this draft class that did it as well. I free, I'm spacing on his name right now, but it's possible, evidently. But that, that doesn't mean everybody can do it. Like when we were joking about the. The baseball speed thing. I'm like, I was going to be like, oh, I could throw whatever left hand. I couldn't. I can't throw left handed. Not just can't throw within a comparable margin of my right hand. I genuinely can't throw. Left, like if I throw left handed, it comes out like a sort of stereotypical joke. Well, that, well that's my point. That's but what, there are other people that can. There are people. Uh, same with the the switch hitting thing, right? I again, literally can't even functionally make the movement left sided. 
But Rick is out there going two right-handed, two left-handed. But even that's like same. a massive – like you can fairly well train yourself to like hit with the other side. I will 100% throw. guarantee you that I could spend the next eight weeks. Same. Other people would like a baseline of – of baseball scale. But I can swing, my point being, I can swing right-handed fine, right? Okay, it's not, you know, it's not exactly textbook technique. Well enough. But I can swing yeah. a bat enough to be able to connect on a ball and hit it fine. I literally, I could spend the next six weeks learning how to do that the other side, and I wouldn't be able to swing left-handed. All right, but that's easier to do than throwing left sure. So when I, hear the, when I hear it's like throwing with the other hand, it's like, no, okay, like a yeah. major leaguer is going to go from being a major leaguer to like a little leaguer. But my point being that hand, we shouldn't treat mostly. this as if it's the same for everybody. There are some players that I'm sure can do it without any problems whatsoever. And there are probably other players that aren't ever going to be able to do it. Was it Max Mitchell? Yes. From Louisiana? Yes, yes. That was uh, added to the chat there, yeah. Um, so, so my point is it's not as extreme as throwing lefty-righty. You also get this whole thing. Like, I do think it takes time and it takes reps, but that's different from people that say, like, it's, it's impossible or, it's, or it shouldn't happen. And I think you're right. It definitely, there are definitely individual cases. But if you're just looking at data, like, there's enough data that says players make this transition. So assuming that players can make the transition, is it risky? Yes, because you're, you're asking them to do something new, but it's not even close to impossible. It no. happens all the time. I would assume that a pl- that it's somebody can do it, but the two. But I would. It's like you were saying before, where you start off with like a baseline, then move it up or down. I would start off with the assumption that I can take a guy from one side of the line, move him to the other side of the line, and I'm okay. I would be happier with that assumption if I've seen him do it in college, right? If I saw him play both positions in college, or I saw him move one to the other, particularly in the same game, that would increase my confidence that he'll do that in the NFL. And I would probably decrease my confidence or be yeah i would be less confident in a guy if he literally only ever played one position and i'm asking him to come in and flip sides so when we're talking about those top three tackles in this draft evan neal icky Aquanu, charles cross and you've got two guys that have played both one guy that's never that's the guy i would be least confident in moving sides sure, absolutely and i brought that up a couple years ago with jedrick wills look it's not risk-free to take a, a right tackle and move them to the left side uh, here's where i so Two more things to add here, though. The Doing it at the NFL level, seven or eight years into a guy's career, I think the longer a guy's been yeah. just on one side, now the more risky it gets. Agreed. Like Ali Villanueva, <laughs> asking him to move to right tackle. Donald Penn a couple years ago. Remember, and Duke made this point, too. And it, I, this was a fair point from Duke. Like, Donald Penn is so used to playing left tackle, eight, ten years in the NFL, whatever it was, goes to play right tackle, gets hurt. Because by that point in your career... I mean, you are ingrained. Nate Solder did it really late in his career, right? Early in his career, he switched back and forth. He had about seven years at left tackle, and then the Giants move him to right tackle. Other guys who have done it, um, Riley Reef has done it. I don't think results have been great. Uh, Trent Brown has kind of gone back and forth almost like year to year at times, and he's, he's pretty much you know stayed the same. Um, but I think it's definitely riskier, riskier at the NFL level. But when you talk to players about it, here's what you have to like balance. Players are going to tell you, like, if we had Mitchell on the show, he would probably tell us how challenging it is he's to already, go from left to right tackle. He's already sounding off on Twitter. Oh, what's he saying? Calling you an idiot, basically. You tweeted, discussing the age-old question, should the NFL move left tackles to right tackle? What did he say? To which he replied, "Now nah, the Saints should have kept Ramchak at left tackle as the backup <laughs> until this year. No, he's mocking people that would never move him to uh, right yeah, tackle. Yeah, assuming you're one of those people. 
That's why I, I triggered everybody with the best right tackle in the NFL, putting Ramchek up there. I triggered Mitch. I mean, look. Man took time out of his Switzerland holiday or whatever he's doing to. Uh, he's not in Switzerland still, is he? He is, I think. It's a pretty neutral holiday. It's That's good. the worst joke anybody has ever told about anything in the history of mankind. Well done. Thanks. I've got worse, I'm sure. <laughs> the more kids you have, the worse the jokes get. All I want to say, look, I, if you talk to an offensive lineman or you talk to Duke or Brandon, whoever, I'm sure they're going to tell you about how difficult it is and how you have to train for it and it's a different mentality and it's different people and it's you're reversing everything and whatever. But that doesn't matter if the data says over time it's doable, right? You like trust the data. I'm not even going to make the comparison to starting pitching or relief pitching. Good. I won't even make it. Mm-hmm. But it's a whole different mentality, right? I mean, it feels like you have a whole different job going from starter to reliever or whatever. You got to go from... You got four days off as a starter, and you just pitch one day. That's it. And you know, you're just you're checked out. And then as a reliever, like you're an everyday player. You're there every single day. You gotta be ready every day. That baseball tally better be going up. We just I'm not gonna As do a starter, this. you gotta like pace yourself I mean, a little bit. As a reliever, you just go all out. One inning, two innings, whatever it go. is. There we go. The tally's going up. Recovery's completely different, right? Of course. And it so it feels different. It's uncomfortable sometimes making the switch. But, like, guys do it all the time. Uh-huh. So you just do it. And you just go. So guys make the left tackle, right tackle switch all the time. So I don't think it's – there's, like, a little bit of risk involved, ultimately. Yeah. But our data says it's done successfully quite a bit with guys in their first couple of years in the NFL. But I think as you get to, like, year seven or eight in the NFL, the risk is through the roof if you're doing it with NFL players. Where it gets – Tricky and interesting, I think, is that idea that I brought up before, which is it's not going to be universal. There are some guys who are going to have you fine. There are some guys who are going to struggle more. Um, how quickly can you figure out one from the other? So remember last year, the start of the season, Detroit. You draft Panay Sewell, yeah. potentially generational left tackle, but you already have a left tackle. Taylor Decker's there. He's signed long term. If you want to play both those guys, Panay Sewell's going to have to play right tackle. Um, or you got to do what you've said is the worst thing to do, which is take an, an entrenched long-time left tackle and ask him to move to the other side of the line deep into his career, which you don't want to be doing. So Detroit moves Panay Sewell, right tackle. And in preseason, it looked disastrous. It looks really bad. Sewell looked like a guy who had never played right tackle and was, like, counting steps and was, you know, on the fly trying to, like, calculate what the hell he was supposed to be doing with his feet and his hands. It looked terrible. And then serendipitously uh, Taylor Decker gets injured they end up moving Sewell back to left tackle he looks great and now you're like well okay do you move him back once Decker gets healthy or what do we do they move him right back and he ends up playing absolutely as well as he did at right at left tackle at right tackle and everything was fine but there must have been a period there where they were looking at this and saying is he a guy that just can he play right tackle like what do do we bail on this Do, do we Trust that he'll get it eventually, and he might just suck for a year, and we'll have to eat that. Or like, what is the game plan here? Right, and, and that might have like that might depend if you've got a guy who's you know naturally able to do it and isn't. Um, Detroit got trashed for that a lot. Like, why would you ever draft? But like, Detroit's process was at number seven. Here's Panay Sewell, a guy that we didn't necessarily think was going to be on the board. He's probably one of the top five players or six players in the draft, whatever you want to call it. He's here at number seven. We're going to take the best player, and we'll figure it out later. Yeah. Whether he's left tackle or right tackle. That's fine. It, it, it ended up working out fine for them anyway because he, 
he played left tackle. He was fine at left tackle. Or good at left tackle. He he was good at right tackle. When but he guess moved back. By the way, he graded better at right tackle right. during the regular season than he did at left tackle. But I think what would have made it really challenging is if Decker had never gotten hurt and they had to keep him at right tackle and he continued that preseason form into the regular season. Like if he was a bad right tackle at the start of the season, how long would you have let him do that? before you were reevaluating whether this is worth going through? Or would they have said, look, this is a long-term project anyway. If he eats it year one at right tackle and he's good year two, because of the growing experience, we're, we're good with that. We don't care. Yeah. So that, they, we were sort of saved, or they were saved, from having to make that decision, which could have been a pretty big one. Yeah, they were. I mean, look, it, it, it did look ugly at first. Huh. I wonder how much of that gets caught on the mic. Does that come through? Is that just Austin jumping out of his chair? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's Austin jumping out of his chair and then running across the upstairs like he's running drills. Yeah, so like Austin, when he, he'll be sitting at his desk in the office and just spastically like get up yeah. and sprint across the room for no reason. To like the bathroom or yeah. to the water or yeah. something. Which is kind of funny when you're upstairs or whatever, and it just kind of happens. When you're downstairs, as yeah. we are, and you hear what seems like a, sounds like a stampede of elephants uh-huh. upstairs. That yeah. was like the loudest one I think we've heard. That was, that was pretty, yeah, pretty excessive. Yeah. I mean, if you, it's, it's entirely in character, though. You know, if you watch the tailgate on YouTube, you'll notice that Austin is a highly caffeinated individual. Whether he's got caffeine in the system or not, you know, the man operates at like 180% at all times. Just constantly wired. And that includes, apparently, running to the bathroom. <laughs> anyway, that was, uh, that was good. We got anything else here today? No, that was, I, that's all I had. Did you have more questions? No, that was it. All right. From uh, Jonathan. Good question. We appreciate all the oh, questions. What's your, uh, what's your charity tally at? Hmm. Mine Bye. has crossed over the $2,000 barrier. Oh, jeez. I'm getting crushed. <laughs> uh, oh, no. We're still at 725. Yeah, You're going to have to make some changes. You, can, you can't just take this kind of ass kicking. There you go. Was, See, look, 2036. I was going to get some help with the logo and all that stuff. Nobody's helped me. You've done nothing. I need, a, uh, I need like a really good angel donor here. You, you've got nothing. You haven't, even, you haven't sweetened the pot in terms of the forfeit you'll be doing. Nothing. You're just sitting here going, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that. I mean... Have people seen me try to do combine drills? That's, that's pretty legit. No, and you haven't shown them either. Come on. Help yeah, the people. Go, help yourself. Let help, me clip the video. Help from, you. Help you. Help you. Help you. All right. Where's my agility drills from last year during the draft? Anyway, we Actually, are. Actually, somebody emailed us and said that I was purposely throwing this so that you could. I know. I saw that. Yeah. yeah so that you'd have to do the forfeit. Deal. It's crossed my mind. Um, I'm now inside $500 to raise before I can, before I have to replicate a a Jackson Mahomes TikTok, and then perhaps more importantly, we can get onto the baseball thing and prove once and for all that I can throw 60 miles an hour back to the university, fresh out of the box. You should fly back with me to uh, UMass Lowell, come back to Lowell, going back for a night. You should come back with me. We could do it all at uh, Little Asher Park over in uh, Lowell. I'll go back if, uh, if they induct me into the Hall of Fame as well. Yeah, I'm not going into the Hall of Fame. They oh, you're still not? have not. No, they have wow. not. You're um, going back to this thing despite being snubbed for the Hall of Fame? Yeah, I thought twice about it. They have not. Isn't that kind of a little? Well, bit? I was hoping maybe they were going to announce it or something at the show. Yeah, at this, uh, where they're they're honoring our Division Two World Series team. Because otherwise, 
this kind of, I mean, that, 20 year anniversary. Doesn't that seem a little bit, you know, weak on your part? You what know? Do you mean? Well, no, like, I'm a team player. This you know is the way a, like Jerry Kramer spent like 50 years being ignored by the Hall of Fame? This would be like if Jerry Kramer went and sat in the front row every year at the Hall of Fame and just sat there cross armed, waiting. You know, no, but the, well, they in, well, they inducted seven other people every year. I'm a, I'm not going to a. It's not a Hall of Fame banquet or anything like that. They are honoring our 2001 and 2002 College World Series teams. Okay, Division Two, but College <laughs> World Series teams, 20 year anniversary. We didn't so, so I'm going back to see my teammates and be a team player to the school that uh, probably should have inducted me into the Hall of Fame at some point, okay. but they did not. It's not quite as bad. It's yeah. not like a, you know, I'm not going to someone else's Hall of Fame because that would be induction. Pretty, I'd I'd be disappointed. I have to think I'm next in line though from this from from these 0102 teams. The only other person that might go in is the kid who's hitting a thousand in the majors. I yeah I would say Tupman. He probably has you beat. Made it to the big leagues. Yeah, hitting a thousand. I mean that sounds impressive. Yeah, one that's for one. what one for one. Oh, I see. He had one hit. He made not it to like the big a leagues. Hits. He made it for seven days, one because the catcher ahead of him got suspended, and another because the uh, catcher ahead of him, or the, one of the catchers, had uh, paternity leave. So that's how he made it to the majors for seven days. The, ma- the, the majors has paternity leave? I mean, you just, I mean, if you want. You're just like, I'm famous. You I'm just go on, go on some kind of reserve list for a few days. Okay. And you call up the AAA replacement. And there's Tubman. Got a hit. Hitting 1,000. Hmm. Rakes. All right. All right. There we go. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we could maybe the fans want to start a petition for uh, to get you in the Hall of Fame. To get me in the Hall of Fame. Uh, maybe they do. By the way, I, okay. the, the results of your poll came in. When we stopped recording on Monday, you broke out this insane take that Ultimate Stratego, or yep. whatever it's called, is it's a correct. better game than chess. It's correct. It's like one of the world's most popular games. Um, yeah, the people are missing out. On I Ultimate figured Stratego. you were crazy, so I posted a poll about it. You know, uh, here we go. Steve, Ultimate Stratego is a better game than chess. Is he crazy? Absolutely. Final results, 56.3%, which means not at all. The people who are in your camp that believe Ultimate Stratego is, in fact, a better game than one of the world's most popular games. It's been around for, what, thousands of years? Hundreds at least? Yeah. 43.7%. I mean, Tyler looked it up on Amazon. How, how, how much does it cost to, you know, buy a chess game? Kit, boards, set, whatever, set, whatever. I mean, as much as you want to spend from almost nothing to like a fortune. There's 90, like $90 to, to pay for Ultimate Stratego. I mean, you could 100% get chess sets for less than $90. Yeah. Many Because it's not as valuable. On the other hand, Look you can get thing. chess sets that cost like 89 change. 89.95. But you can also get chess sets that cost like 100 times that. Yeah, whatever. That's fine. I'm sure you could make a night. But this game... Terrible argument. It's not regular Stratego. It is ultimate. It's two-on-two. It's a two-on-two game. Please don't run through It's great for your friends. I can't handle this again. You're either going to unite the flags or you're going to capture the flags. I mean, it's like chess, but you don't know what everybody's pieces are. That's the deal. That's why it's better. You don't know what everybody's pieces are until they're revealed in the battle. It's a great game. It's underrated. Yeah. It's underrated. Did uh, Has there been a... Uh, what's it, the Turing moment where there's a computer beating a human yet in Ultimate Stratego? What's the Ultimate Stratego version of Oh, Deep I used Blue? to have like the CD-ROM version or whatever. I did play the computer. Could it kick your ass? Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. Because it took like, it took, you know, decades for somebody to create a computer that could beat a human at chess. And you're telling me that like I just, the CD version? I don't think people have poured the same resources into Ulti- Ultimate Stratego. What I don't understand is I've really never run into anybody outside of my 
circle of friends who have played this game. Apparently, there's like forty-seven percent of people that listen to us that not only have played it, but think they it's just don't think I'm chess. crazy. But it, I don't know if they're really answering the question about Ultimate Stratego. I've never even seen like a blog about it or anything like that. It's amazing. Like, you can find anything on the internet except Ultimate Stratego information. So yeah, yeah. Anyway, we should probably tell you something about that take. It's a great game. It's underrated. That's what is what I'll tell you. All right, we're done yeah. with the football discussion and all the other discussion. Go check out the charities um, at. PFF underscore Steve at PFF underscore Sam. And don't forget, you get 25% off any PFF subscription using the promo code NFLPOD just for you. NFLPOD. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll be back again tomorrow with some more great NFL podcast action.